Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, Hugh Drummond joins me for 321 Go. Then we have an interview with Evan Horowitz from Tufts. And in two minutes with Tom, Tom and I talk about the campaign for president and the increasingly stark contrast growing between Joe Biden and President Trump. So for this week's 321 Go, uh, Cosmo is out and Hugh Drummond is stepping in. Hugh, welcome to 321 Go this week. It's always great to be here, Cayenne. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so, you know, there's no shortage of, of news and things to cover every week. Um, first up, we wanted to talk and, you know, I think give some kudos to the New York Times, who this week, Sunday, May 24th, the front page of the New York Times, which is a highly coveted front page to be on, uh, was dedicated entirely to names of those who have died from the COVID-19 pandemic. It was uh, an extraordinary move, I think, by the New York Times. Um, and, you know, to see it in the on the screen, if to, to look at the digital edition, but then to see the print copy, um, it blew my mind. Yeah, that's one of those uh, print copies I wish I had I had found on that day and picked up because it was incredibly sobering and somber to see uh, online. I can only imagine that in person it was more so. And it really just showed it, it just a glimpse, too. And that's something that we need to remember is that was only a piece of the names and the obituaries. That's um, right. I mean, it's a three three month period, and um, you know, at the end of March, the U.S. had about four thousand deaths from COVID nineteen. In April, it went up to sixty thousand. Um, so by the end of May, to to have hit a hundred thousand, it's it's incredibly tragic. So in you know, a hundred thousand in in a span of less than four months. I was um, uh, watching the Lawrence O'Donnell show on MSNBC uh, this week. And Ron Klain was one of the guests. And Ron Klain was the uh, Ebola czar uh, back when Ebola, uh, the epidemic uh, uh, took place during the um, Obama years. And uh, Ron Klain uh, said that if you looked at that New York Times, uh, the digital screen, and you scrolled through every name, it took three seconds to read each name, it would take four months of Lawrence O'Donnell's one-hour show to get through all of the names listed. I mean, it, it really is moving and tragic, and um, I really salute the New York Times for, for putting that out there for us to see. And... You know, as I said, the, the front page really is it's this coveted place uh, to be on any paper. Uh, the New York Times, certainly um, one of one of the leading papers. Do you think that it will cause others to find creative ways to sort of pay tribute? Um, I don't think anyone else will do it quite the same way because, uh, you know, I think people might want to do it differently. But. Will it get other newsrooms talking, do you think, about, you know, how should we be approaching this and, and giving um, this the the attention that it really deserves? I think so. I mean, I, I think that newsrooms are, are have been doing that um, in, in looking for ways to make sure that the stories of, of these uh, people uh, get told, get shown somehow. Uh, I mean, you pick up the Boston Globe. Uh, I forget, um, you know, all these weeks blend together. But there was a one one Sunday Globe recently where I think the obits ran about 24 pages, mm. and you know it's not the same as just listing a is listing a hundred thousand names, but 24 pages of of you know, personal funeral notices. I mean, it was um, again. I, I think that newsrooms are are looking for ways to, uh, how, how do you honor these victims? How do you tell the story? How do you also make, um, uh, th there, there's uh, um, news in the fact that if the United States had acted sooner, um, maybe we wouldn't be at 100,000 at this point. Um, so there's all kinds of 
ways that I think uh, uh, journalists are and editors are are trying to make it clear to people that this is a uh, a moment in history that we're going through, and um, it needs to be remembered and and uh, told, visualized uh, in extraordinary ways. Yeah, people should. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, people should check it out. Also, the New York Times has an interactive page on their website that they are um, updating, I think, daily uh, with the names and numbers uh, with little descriptions about um, a lot of the people. And it's, it's pretty impressive. So take a look. So next up, uh, the country is starting to reopen. Different states are in different phases, and those phases look different from state to state. Uh, I am currently in California, uh, hanging out in Napa Valley, which is not the worst place in the world to be, I must confess. Uh, but California is certainly in a different spot than Massachusetts. So I just thought we could spend a couple minutes talking about you know, what those differences are and what that looks like. Um, you know, one of the bigger things I've noticed is hair salons and barbershops were part of phase one in Massachusetts. Uh, that was not the case here. They were not some of the first businesses to open. We saw small businesses on kind of Main Street and then town centers open first. Uh, restaurants are starting to do dine-in, socially distant dining, uh, and a lot of outside eating well before, or at least, you know, a few days to a week before we saw uh, hair salons and things like that open. So what are you starting to see in Massachusetts or taking note of? Well, first, let me say, I try to create my own little Napa Valley here in the uh, evenings. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to recreate, I got to tell you. Right. Pretty nice here. Um, but the, you know, I think the there is a, um, we, we're just beginning phase one of reopening in Massachusetts and uh, Massachusetts, as everyone knows, has been hit very hard by COVID-19 and has um, been very responsible, I think, in in uh, planning a, a very methodical, slow reopening. Um, so this week, phase one, we, we did see hair salons open and pet groomers open uh, houses of worship could could open to limited capacity, um, and phase one is a three week window where uh, which makes sense because COVID, if you are exposed or um, have it, they like you to isolate for about fourteen days. So in this case, you have a three week window, which means you have two weeks where to look at. In that third week, you can look back at those two weeks and see how the numbers have moved, if they've moved, and if if then the phase needs to be extended or can end on time. So um, my main takeaway uh, right now is I actually get a sense of uh, optimism from people as they begin the reopening phase. I mean, no one is is uh, taking away from the fact that there have been a hundred thousand. Uh, uh, American lives lost um, in, in in just over just under a four month period, and that number will continue to grow. But there is hope now as the uh, summer months and the weather improves. If there's um, a little bit of reopening, um, it, it just feels good. Yeah, I will say I think the weather is a, a huge component of just mental and emotional well-being um it's those the days are a lot easier when it's when it's sunny and it's nice out um there was a few weeks there where i think you guys were just getting battered with rain and cloudy weather and the difference um i think in in my mood some days versus people i was talking to was in contrast just based on that uh when it's you know 70 80 and sunny it really does help help things along a little bit. It also gives way to more opportunities to get outside, be active, whether it's in your yard or a park. Um, and, you know, when, when Massachusetts gets to that phase of attempting dine-in eating at restaurants, 
patio seating and things like that are going to be really important to some of these businesses being able to flourish. Yeah, and that's going to be a challenge because unlike California, uh, where many uh, uh, small uh, restaurants or, or eating establishments have those kinds of um, facilities, in Massachusetts, um, it's 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 actually it's not that much, uh, not that many have that, and especially when you look at the main streets of small towns. Um, and so uh, it's not going to be without its challenges, but um, we are uh, looking forward to, um, you know, to testing these new waters and uh, and supporting these businesses. Yeah, and just quickly for anyone who's not familiar with with the government system in California, um, you know, Governor Newsom has done a, a fantastic job. Uh, he was one of the first governors, if not the first governor, I think, to shut down a state when this all began. Uh, but the county system of government, because California is such a large state, is actually very uh, prevalent here. So from county to county, things look very different. L.A. County is in a very different place than Napa Valley um, uh, and Napa County, for example. So I'm speaking from this county um, and someone from L.A. is having a very different experience right now, rightfully so, just based on population density and and numbers and where they're at. But um I'm I'm optimistic for for everyone back in Massachusetts as the weather gets better that this will all feel just a little bit easier. Yeah, and no no matter where you are or what phase you're in, still it's it's all about face coverings, physical distance, and hygiene. Yeah, we uh we if we respect those things, we're all going to get farther faster uh, together. That's for sure. <laughs> So last up, if Hugh is on, we've got to talk about some of his favorite things, which um, is flying and weather. And those happen to come together very serendipitously this week as we're talking to Hugh. SpaceX launch, or lack thereof because of weather complications that has now been rescheduled for this weekend. It's actually really incredible. Um, the the U.S. will be putting astronauts into space uh, using a private vehicle, a private carrier. Um, it's going to be the first crewed spacecraft launch in the U.S. Uh, since the end of the space shuttle program, which was uh, 2011. So, I, yeah, I'm very excited about it. Um, I think it's um, I, I love the uh, space program, the the. the advances that have come because of that you know everyone the famous thing about duct tape and things like that but it's also um it, it fulfills our uh, kind of innate need to explore and discover and space is is an unknown frontier in so many ways so i'm looking forward to um spacex and and hopefully we'll have a launch this weekend and um and then we'll see where it goes um I if you I don't know if if you watched Cayenne, but the the coverage yesterday was uh, was fun to watch because um, it's a very different looking uh, space operation than the the traditional NASA. You know, when you think of NASA, you might think of the Apollo thirteen movie and, and Mission Control and the buzz cut people in short sleeves mm -hmm. and ties, you know, sitting at these computers. SpaceX is, uh, while it's launching from Cape Canaveral uh, on the same launch pad that launched the shuttles and that launched uh, Apollo 11 to the moon and so forth, Mission Control is actually a SpaceX Mission Control. So it's not NASA. And, yeah, and it's it private. different. What's that? This is private. It's private, exactly. And um, the other thing that's kind of interesting is they, the, the astronauts, these are two NASA astronauts. In fact, um, one of them um, was um, um, flew in the last space shuttle mission, um, but their, their astronaut gear, their, their spacesuits are very modern looking. It's something out of like a sci-fi movie, um, very sleek. Uh, uh, no surprise. This is, SpaceX is a Elon Musk uh, company, so it's a uh, Tesla uh, look and feel. Uh, the um, 
the uh, crew capsule, which is called Crew Dragon, is all touch screens. And, um, you know, so not a lot of those little knobs and dials and, and stuff. It's just a bunch of touch screens. Very cool. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think this is um, it's, it's a great moment for the space program. Um, and my view is it's, it's less about whose equipment it is and more about the possibilities that come with that. Yeah, and I think that it was a nice distraction, right, with uh, between uh, politics and this global pandemic and just everything that is going on in the world. Um, it was nice to talk about something else. Uh, it was nice to see something else trending on Twitter um, and just something else hopeful too um, that's kind of bigger than than so many of us to focus on for a little bit and uh, hopefully we'll get to do that this weekend. Yeah, let's hope so. The um, um, the program is a um, it's going to be very interesting to watch the the kind of blend of commercial operations with with uh, traditionally the the government, but uh, it's happened before. It happened with air travel. Um, it was, uh, air mail was, uh, the post postal service, um, took to aircraft, which then, uh, were produced by commercial, uh, companies and, and, you know, launched the entire industry. So we'll see. I mean, there's all kinds of things that will come out of this. All right. Well, this weekend, hopefully we'll stay tuned. Can't wait. All right, here. Well, thanks for joining me this week and filling in for Cosmo. And um, I know that maybe we can have you on next week to debrief us on SpaceX launch because you'll know far more than than I will, I'm sure. <laughs> it's one of the things I kind of nerd out on, but uh, yeah, happy, <laughs> happy to be here today. Happy to come back anytime. All right, thanks. We are here today with Evan Horowitz, who is the, the founder and the head of the Center for State Policy Analysis at Tufts, which is a, a pretty brand spanking new think tank in town. It, it looks at legislative and state policy issues and it analyzes what they mean. They have had three reports out that have been really well received. And given the world we're in right now, they have obviously centered on the current crisis in COVID, but I, I think uh, Evan is gonna let us know that there is going to be more than COVID as they move on. So I wanna introduce Evan, who is a former journalist, currently a BC uh, journalism guest lecturer and uh, a proud graduate of Princeton University. Evan, you wanna talk a little bit about your background and what your views are for the, for I think you guys call it C-SPA, right? Yeah, like it has a nice ring to it, like you're getting a massage at the beach or something rather than pouring like a cocktail. It's yeah. a good time for something relaxing like Sea Spa. So tell us how you came up with with the genesis for Sea Spa. Well, I mean, you know, when I was at the Globe, I would get calls from legislators uh, asking me to do research for them. And that seemed like a obvious evidence of a missing state capacity to actually provide information to uh, state legislators. So I started writing about how valuable it would be to have a CBO-like organization, you know, the Congressional Budget Office, which does analysis for Congress of the impact of bills. It was actually inspired by a state version of that in California, the Legislative Analyst Office. Um, so states came up with this idea first. And we had an organization like this in Massachusetts uh, up in, in, the, in the late 20th century, let's say. Um, it disappeared, uh, but I thought it would be valuable to bring it back. So I started writing about the need for such a thing, and I tried to convince people to create one um, in-house. Uh, that didn't work, and I thought at some point, you know, if you believe in something and no one else is doing it, you got to do it yourself. So I decided to start an agency like that, found partners at Tufts, and here I am. That's great. So. Um... The, for the Center for State Policy Analysis, you've um, already issued three reports on um, math, the Massachusetts response, on what it's going to do with tax revenues, what the implications are uh, for, for COVID and the elections. 
Um, tell us a little bit about what your findings were for each of those reports. Well, let's just start by saying um, these were not the reports we were planning on doing. Of course. Right? I, mean, I joined Tufts in October. We launched officially, that a CSPA launched officially in February with plans to do an analysis of TCI, the Transportation Climate Initiative, which is like the multi-state um, carbon cap and trade system, as well as an account of, of uh, efforts to control prescription drug costs, which was nobody remembers because it's two months ago and uh, our lives no longer make sense, um, but which was a top legislative priority uh, for this session. So th th those were going to be our first reports. And, you know, within weeks of our um, public announcement, our, our founding, basically, uh, it became clear that the only thing that really mattered for politics and was going to matter for a while was COVID. So we quickly changed gears and our, as a first effort, decided that we wanted to look at the possible impact on revenues, on state revenues of this crisis. And, you know, so we developed a model to do so. And, you know, I thought it was going to take us a long time because, you know, these models can get complicated, but we found pretty quickly there's a relatively straightforward connection between national GDP growth and state tax revenues. And I was shocked actually by how strong the connection is. If, if all you know is US GDP, not even Massachusetts GDP, then you have 98% of the information you need to um, project Massachusetts state tax revenues, uh, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, at that point, we kind of realized we could do this pretty quickly. Uh, because there are lots and lots of smart people already trying to project what U.S. GDP is going to be like over the next year. So we listened to them. And based on those projections, we did our own projections of Massachusetts state tax revenues and found basically, uh, well, at the time, that we were looking at somewhere between a 500 and 750 million dollar shortfall for this fiscal year. That is just until the end of June. And then something like a billion to two billion for next year. Now, um, that was really in the crisis. I think that the number the numbers have risen since then, but at the time that's that's what we found. Um, I think if I've, I've rerun this on several occasions since, and uh, these days it looks more like um, well, still somewhere between five hundred and a billion dollars for this fiscal year, but more like two to three billion dollars shortfall for next fiscal year. But you know, so much of this just hinges on what happens in the fall and the winter. How much time can we spend? you know, buying things uh, outside, in stores, uh, in restaurants, uh, at shopping malls, um, back at our, back in our offices. And really, that's anybody's guess. Um, I'm also interested in your, the report around the elections, um, which is something for, uh, that I know, for instance, Tufts in general is really interested around in, in terms of civic engagement. So um, you, the report had some interesting uh, recommendations about thinking about this in terms of both short-term and long-terms and the impact on our democracy. I thought it'd be interesting to hear a little bit more about um, what you found there. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm blessed to be surrounded by people who spend a lot of time thinking about how to get particularly young uh, Americans engaged in the, in voting in politics. Um, so it was a natural, it was a natural topic to pursue but also, you know, as soon as we did the revenue estimate, uh, it kind of occurred to me through that process that there weren't enough people really thinking about medium term problems. Like there were a lot of people thinking about short term public health crisis issues. Yeah, right. Um, but there were very few people thinking about like, well, what are we going to need to do over the next four months, five months, six months? And one of those things is clearly hold a bunch of elections, um, primaries, some municipals and the general in November. Um, and that's going to require some really special planning, given the well, what we expect will be the conditions at that time. So the first thing that people are talking about is is vote by mail. Um, and I, I don't see any way around this. There's going to be a huge demand from people to vote from home one way or another, not to go to the polls. There's actually a working paper that came out this week trying to estimate how much uh, COVID spread there was as a result of people having to go to the polls in Wisconsin. That is, you know, that Wisconsin held their primary and they kind of bungled the uh, vote by mail efforts. Lots of people had to go to the polls and um, it did, it did sp help spread the disease. Like there's now evidence of that. Uh, it's not hypothetical. There's a real risk, both personal and social. So people are going to want to avoid that. Uh, and the state has to take, make changes to make that happen because, well, for one thing, 
we make it really hard to vote from home. You have to have a valid excuse and the number of valid excuses is very small. So the first thing state can do is just say, well, COVID creates an excuse for everyone. And they seem inclined to do that, uh, which is good. But then there's also a big infrastructure problem because you can say, okay, everybody has a valid excuse and can get an absentee ballot and vote from home. But in 2016, we sent absentee ballots to 4% of voters. We might have to send them to 50% of voters or 70% of voters this time around. And that's that's a huge change in how you organize the printing and mailing and logistical process behind this. And that's got to be sorted out uh, pretty quickly. You know, that kind of that kind of brings me to a subject I wanted to touch on. You have looked at a lot of the the in-depth aspects of what COVID has done to us. And one thing that COVID has done to us, I think, is to make it important again that that government is competent. Government, you know, in a time like this is hugely important. And as you've looked at Baker's response, as you look at things like elections, what is your level of confidence that we can rise to meet all of these crises, the, the economic disaster we're facing, the prospect of botched, difficult, complex elections. As you look at all this, how do you feel about that going forward? Through I'm, I'm not talking about through a federal lens, because I think that's pretty clear, but through a Massachusetts lens. So one thing that I've been sort of pleasantly, uh, well, let's just say impressed with at the state level is how competently we've handled uh, coordination. Because I mean, one of the great difficulties in a decentralized state like ours, where you have 351 cities and towns who enjoy their local prerogatives and enjoy going their own way, uh, is that it can be very difficult to get everybody moving in the same direction, following the same rules. And you can end up with kind of fractious disagreements. You see it on zoning, you know, that's one of the big places where you see it. Um, where there are kind of state priorities and a strong yeah. consensus among leading thinkers, but you just can't get the towns to all go along with it and you need all of them to go along with it. Um, but we haven't had that and we might have. Uh, so I think that sort of speaks to the sort of unified political um, consensus in the state and how f effectively it's been functioning. Um, I was nervous around, I'm, I'm still nervous around this uh, come election season. Because as you know, a lot of this is just handled locally. It's the cities and towns that decide which polling places are open and for what hours and uh, how they're going to organize their, how they're going to send out absentee ballots and things like that. So it really requires a tremendous amount of coordination. And it's the same with the contact tracing, get back to COVID. Uh, it's the cities and towns, the local public health departments that really have, that really have responsibility for handling most of the contact tracing. Um, and I think that I thought that was a, a potentially serious problem. It seems to be a problem that is getting addressed, and I think to the credit of um, executive forces in the state. Um, the legislature, on the other hand, is struggling with I – mean, one of the reasons it's, it's important to have a functioning le legislature um, is because they air debates on contentious issues, right? The, the point of an executive is to have a kind of centralized, streamlined force running agencies and keeping things working. And the point of the legislature – in part anyway, is to air serious disagreements and debate them and move forward. Um, and it's very hard to do that in a situation where legislators aren't getting together, right? They're not going to their offices or they struggle to go to their offices. They, it's hard to find, to get quorums. Everything's happening remotely. So they're not meeting in the halls. They're not talking through issues. And this is not, right, I'm not blaming them for this. This is just the situation they find themselves in. And it's a very difficult situation. So I think in some ways, I think that's the kind of political challenge that has to be met. Whereas on the executive side, I think it's working more smoothly. We have, uh, we have a lot of social justice clients. We have SEIU 1199. We have a lot of people in the healthcare space. Um, and we do a lot in gateway cities like Brockton and Chelsea. There, there is a, a conversation out there that the short-term response has been good and competent. There's a real question. This is exposed, obviously, huge disparities in the way people are treated um, and in the, way, in the way that a crisis affects them. Far greater numbers of hourly working Black and Hispanic people have gotten sick and died here. The disparities in health care, it's exposed, the disparities in pay, the disparities in rental versus, versus owning housing, public transportation need. 
do you see any long-term change coming out of this? Or are we going back to the system that we've operated under for years? I mean, obviously, long-term, hard change in the inequity field is going to be difficult. But are you hearing people talking about trying to undertake that? Um, not really. In the sense that I think people are mostly overwhelmed by the short-term concerns and are having a hard time seeing past that to broader long-term needs. So I say that that would be the first issue. It's a very, while, while this crisis is exposing those inequities in a very raw way, um, it's not really opening up political spaces to redress them. Partly that's because the state is, has no money. Um, and is unlikely to have money for some time, which makes it very hard. And partly it's the attention problem. It's just hard to focus on long-term issues when really you're worried about, can I leave the house and you know our school's gonna open up in the fall or what am I gonna do with camp? So it, I think it's just a real challenge. The other problem is a lot of this really does fall to the federal government. I appreciate Jeremy, you said you didn't wanna take a federal lens. Um, it, it's hard to take a federal lens sometimes and, and sort of stay on the, uh, well, it, for obvious reasons. but. The federal government has access to resources that the state not only can't match, but can't even approach. Um, and this would be true on, on the distribution side. It would be true on the reorganizing our healthcare system side or student debt or uh, carbon taxes and managing pollution. I mean, on all these things, there, there are steps the, st the state could take. Um, but, but for really transformative action, there really isn't a substitute for federal leadership. Uh, so that's another reason I, uh, it's hard to envision dramatic changes coming out of this. So you have done a deep dive um, on these issues related to COVID in Massachusetts. What do you think, what do you think we need to do to get back to normal? And what does normal look like on the other end of this? So, man, yeah, this is rough. Um, real, well, the, uh, the, the first best solution is a vaccine and progress towards the vaccine has been going surprisingly well, I gather. So that's good. The second best solution is some kind of antiviral treatment, um, where there's also been some progress. So, I mean, short of a vaccine, it's also possible that you can just change people's risk assessment by saying, even if you do get sick, uh, we have this drug, it will make it 50% less, uh, intense and reduced your risk of hospitalization to, you know, near zero. And people might say, okay, uh, then, you know, then I can handle it. Um, beyond that, or before those things are available, uh, it really is a, a kind of test and trace process. It's, we have to have enough tests so that everybody who needs one gets one. And we have to have the resources to make sure that all the people who test positive um, can then alert, or all the people who've been exposed to those who test positive can then get their own tests and quarantine. So it's a very involved public health process that you know we've made some steps towards, but is totally unproven as yet, uh, with big open questions about how much of digital technology could help, say an app, things like that. Um, in the meantime, all these kinds of efforts around, well, we'll open up these smaller shops and capacity will be 40% or 50%, and maybe we'll let some people go back to work or go to church. I mean, these are all, little experiments. And so long as you're running a bunch of these little experiments, some of them are likely to fail. Uh, and that's the big problem. The big problem is some of these experiments are going to fail, and then you will have local outbreaks. And the, the question is, do we really have the public health infrastructure now to stop the local outbreaks from turning into broader outbreaks and forcing a, another lockdown? And I, I wish I could say confidently that the answer is yes, we have that in place, but I, I don't know. As you look as you look out at the legislature and the administration, and you've you've obviously been in the guts of this and done a really good job. How has the reception been to your work? Are you getting feedback, particularly from legislators, um, that they're finding this useful? That they are seeing things here that that you know, as you said before, they needed a research arm, and and you have helped provide one. What are you hearing back? So, yeah, I've gotten very good feedback. And I mean, I feel it in two ways. One is um, there are legislators that we talk to who alter their proposals as a result of their, you know, of their research, which is always, you know, very gratifying. But I think 
it's also the kind of backdoor stuff where I have more staffers who are reaching out to me directly to say, you know, we're interested in this. Can you do some research around it? Or is this on your radar? Have you been That's thinking great. about this? Uh, and, you know, we've only been around for a little bit. So just to have to have even those kinds of, of sort of uh, kind of proof, proofs of concept uh, has been really gratifying. So I'm, I'm happy. I'm very happy. Um, to have been able to provide information at a time when it's in in great demand. Um, potential I, I permanent just... changes that you might see out there. Do you see potential changes in in the way we work, the the way we meet, the way we get from one place to another that are going to last more than just a few months? Uh, I had this conversation this morning um, with a. Kind of leading private sector uh, figure, and it's a it's a really really interesting question. I think uh, I know personally that being in a large group now feels totally different than it did right three months ago. So even in a world where we have a vaccine or something, the idea that I could just shake off this feeling and get on the subway. Uh, it's hard to imagine. I, I do it think is. it will take It's very away. hard to imagine doing that again. Yeah, even if you felt rationally like it was safe. Yeah. You know, the, the notion that somehow you, you could just shake off these concerns and go back to the way it was, I, it, it's really hard to envision. On the other hand, uh, people are like surprisingly resilient and our ability to predict our own response to things is notoriously terrible, right? I mean, it's just... People just dramatically underestimate their ability to accommodate change. And you see this in all kinds of research about people who have like major life crises. They come out on the other side and they they simply just don't understand why they didn't think they could get through it or that they would be the same person. Or the other the other research around this is sort of like when you look back over the last 10 years, any person looking back retrospectively thinks, wow, I've really grown so much. I'm a totally different person than I was 10 years ago. But then ask them how different they're going to be in 10 years. And they think, well, I'll be a little different, but it's probably still me. Um, but that's, of course, not true. It's the same, right? Uh, right. So, yeah, I, my, my sense is that it's very hard to know, but it's going to be slow. Even if we get to a point where you're like, well, wait a minute, the risks are exactly what they were in January. We have a vaccine. Nobody is more exposed when they go out. It's fine. I think there will be a reluctance to go back to crowded offices to sit and to go to bars to to get on the on sea. So in that sense, I think people will be looking for kind of more ways to do things in smaller circles of, of sociability. Yeah, we have a very smart bank CEO who said the other day, it has expedited really rapidly what was going to happen anyway. People are not going to stand in line in front of tellers anymore to cash checks. They're going to do it over their phone. They they are not going to want to go back to the office to work. They're going to want to work at home. They've seen that this stuff works that we've mostly only talked about. And it's going to be hard to go back to the old ways. I think that's right. You see it with delivery food too. I mean, it's like I so I think that's right. Like trends that you saw that were happening before will you'll see acceleration there, right? The like the consolidation of food services stuff where people stop going to individual restaurants and waiting in line to order. But instead, you know, you order through an app and it's actually some big commercial kitchen and then it gets delivered to you. Like that stuff was already accelerating and now it's just, it's going to make a, a quantum leap. Right. Um, but it's the transportation stuff where I think you have a really interesting challenge because the state's going to have to make some decisions about how and whether to invest in transportation and in what way. And it has to do it right now in a vacuum about what consumer preferences or rider preferences are going to be like moving forward. And that's hard. Yeah. And, you know, it, it circles back a little bit to the inequity issues that we were discussing earlier. There has to, you know, there people need to remember that when you're talking about transportation, you know, you are talking about people who are, often many people who are reliant on it to get to work, et cetera. Oh, for sure. Although you could imagine, I mean, yeah, but you could also invest in other ways to make it cheaper for people to get to work in other modes, right? You can make other investments in other dimensions, whether it's bikes or e-bikes, you know what I mean? Yep. Um, yeah. In which case you're not surrounded with people. I'm not, I'm not endorsing that. I'm just saying it's a complicated set of decisions about how to devote resources, even in an equity framework, not knowing what preferences are going to be like. 
Yeah, absolutely. Evan, it has been great to talk to you. I wanted to ask you, uh, let's pretend COVID didn't happen and you have three reports that you, you really want to get to that you think it's important for us to look at. What would, what would your dream three be in a COVID-free world? Well, we are still working on this TCI report. So this is a major regional initiative to address um, carbon emissions from transportation, of, from cars, from cars and trucks, and to use that money to plow into uh, issues of environmental justice, um, pollutants, reducing pollutants, moving to electrify cars and trucks. And, you know, we've been working on a piece of trying to lay out exactly the costs and prospects and trade-offs, and we're still going to do that. Um, so, you know, between our COVID related reports. So that's the first one. And the next one is ballot. Questions. Just let me, let me stick in a shameless client plug here. Suzanne and I work with the Conservation Law Foundation. They are tremendously smart on all that stuff. And if you, if you want to have a chat with some of their folks about that, I'm sure they'd be thrilled. No, I appreciate that. I haven't spoken to them since, uh, Rafael Maris left. Um, yeah. but I should get a new, new contacts there. Good. We'll um, shoot you some names. That'd be great. Um, so uh, then in the fall, we're going to do ballot questions. There, there will be non-COVID-related ballot questions, presumably, uh, on the ballot in November. Um, and there are four prospects. I don't think all four will make it, but some will. We may end up voting on, you know, deciding whether to switch to ranked choice voting, uh, whether to allow beer and wine sales in convenience stores. Um, there's a fight between mechanics and dealers around right to repair. And then there's a nursing home uh, reimbursement question. A any of those four could end up on the ballot. And we're going to do analysis of all those. That's part of the mission is there's nobody really doing nonpartisan assessment of ballot questions. We're, we're going to do that. So that's uh, that'll go forward. I mean, that's one of the that's one of the fun things about being in this space. Right. There's no shortage of kind of fascinating topics with real trade offs. And, I, you know, I have the luxury of taking a nonpartisan approach to them. So I don't have to minimize concerns or you know, look away from complicated trade-offs. I can just spell it out. Uh, and I find that very liberating. I mean, in the piece we did on voting, uh, there is this ongoing debate about whether it makes more sense to just send everybody a ballot or whether that's too risky from a security perspective and you should instead send people applications for, uh, for, for ballots to vote by mail. And, you know, I talked to enough experts to know that there's just strong disagreement, really hard trade-offs and no obvious answer to this question. And I got to say that. Um, which, as I say, is for me, it's it's a nice position to be in. Yeah, and I would say actually that in reading the brief, it shows the quality of the brief. I mean, you were you are showing both the uh, opportunities that are available, but not ignoring the risks. So you know, I think that that shows the quality of the research work that you guys are doing over there. Well, I, I appreciate that. We're uh, we're trying. We're trying. Um, so I think this will be the last question, which is there, your basic, is there anything we missed? <sighs> so one thing that we're starting to think about and starting to work on, and it gets to some of the equity questions, is around uh, digital divide stuff. This was an issue that you know seemed like a big deal you know, five to seven years ago. There was a movement around it, but it kind of faded. And e-learning you know, and, and work from home has really brought it back to the fore. Uh, so I think this is another of these kind of questions that should get resolved in the next, or need to get resolved in the next three, four or five months. If students are gonna be working from home again in the fall, who has access to the, the electronic and digital tools that they need, who doesn't, and how can, we make, how can we make sure that there's a much more equitable distribution of access to those kinds of necessary kind of learning materials um, for all in the Commonwealth.
Hi, Cayenne. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. I I, um, I, I miss seeing you in in, in uh, real life. Same. Doing these doing these two minutes with Tom remotely. Uh, it's a little different, but we get to talk at least to each other, you know, once or twice a week, and that's great. Um, I, and I always enjoy our chats. You're the best. You are the very best. So, any questions? What are we talking about today? Well, the uh, the campaign for, for president continues. Um, and as things are starting to open up, I think we're going to see more of Joe Biden um, outside of Facebook Live and, and Zoom and uh, video interviews. We saw him emerge this week on Memorial Day. Uh, wearing a mask in stark contrast to almost everyone, if not all of uh, President Trump's appearances. And I think that that marks one big difference between the two. But every day we're really starting to see the difference in how these two candidates are approaching not only this campaign, but the management of this pandemic. And obviously you you know Joe Biden, um, so probably have some insights there, but just in general, you know, your thoughts on that, because this is just the beginning. We've got months ahead of us of the campaign, as well as managing the COVID crisis. Yeah, I think what you're saying is a a differentiation between a a Donald Trump who came to the presidency without ever being in public service versus the suggested um, Democratic nominee Joe Biden, who has been in government his entire adult life, um, who is who is a born public servant um, and has worked both at the state as well as at the federal level for a good number of years. All of that while, you know, being being accomplished in in learning and sophistication as to how to deal with domestic issues as well as foreign uh, foreign issues, um, getting to know and, and be intricate with the process of government and understanding the global leadership intimately. Um, And the people have a lot of confidence in him and the way he conducts himself every day as a human being. That juxtaposition between himself and Donald Trump, I think is, is eye dropping. Um, Just simple decency. Well, it's simple decency. It's composure. It's, it's treating people the way you want to be treated. Uh, versus, you know, just a, a an unkind, um, it, it, just an unkind, at times, uncouth, um, often, often has you know speckled, riddled speech with, you know, with 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 four letter words that, you know, shouldn't be uttered by the president of the United States or anybody for that matter. Um, I think the way they both conduct their daily lives is, is really quite stuck. Joe reminds me of, uh, you know, an earlier time when people had had it, frankly, with Richard Nixon from 1968 through 1974 and just wanted to rid themselves of having to see him on television uh, surrounding all the issues of Watergate, all the lies that were being told at the time and how he got cornered by the Congress of the United States you know, there there are a lot of there are a lot of parallels between the way he conducted himself and the way Donald Trump conducts himself. And so, what Congress did was they nominated a man and put in place on the interim a president by the name of Jerry Ford, who brought calm and peace back to the White House and to America, and was a unifying voice, a Republican unifying voice, and people grew to love him um, with all his all of his foibles. People grew to love him because he was kind, he was gentle, and he was strong when he had to be. Uh, and that's the way Joe Biden is viewed. He'll be a great respite, I think, from what we see and have been dealing with for the last three and a half years with this guy in the White House. Um, it, it'll be a relief to see Joe Biden or somebody who is the exact opposite of Donald Trump reside in the White House, providing leadership for this country leadership for the country around the world and garnering back respectability that has been long missing over these last three and a half years, the respectability of other governments, other democratic governments, 
and for the uh, and for the and for the dictators of the world, you know, once again, they're going to hear the way a democracy should be uttering things that are really demonstrable and, and helping out the American stature globally. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, too. I hope so, too. Whether it's wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. I mean, how ridiculous can you be? Trump suggests to, to the American public that if you put one on, you're a wuss. You know, mm-hmm. it's just crazy. Um, what, what people are doing by putting on a mask is showing, you know, that they respect not only their own health, but the health of everybody else they're coming in contact with. Um, if Donald Trump, Trump can't show that respect, there's something, I think, just something wrong with him. Um, even the first lady, Melania, had her, her, had her mask on when she wasn't within camera range, um, which was indicative of how some people around Donald Trump, including his family, truly feel about what's going on around this country, around this world with this coronavirus. Yeah. It's not a weakness. I think to your point, it it is the sign of respect for yourself and for others and just for what everyone's dealing with as a country. We, um, you know, a hundred thousand, uh, yesterday was was the number and to not respect that and give it the the gravitas that it it deserves um is you know simply unfortunate blaming the chinese for perpetrating an illness around the world and suggesting that they did it purposefully when i mean it's just ridiculous um or or you know suggesting that suggesting that mail-in ballots will be wrong and it, a lot of fraud will be taking place. It's just wrong. It's factually, in both cases, wrong. Um, and that's the difference between having someone like Joe Biden in the White House and having the incumbent presidents in, in the White House. Yeah. Well, now's the time where we, we sign off and you give us your words of wisdom. Hey, it will be, along with Joe Biden, with or without, it will be a brighter day. That I guarantee you. <laughs> Okay, and I want to thank you very much for kind of paying attention to my utterances for longer than two minutes, Cayenne. You're terrific to do so. Thanks, Tom. All right. Thanks a lot. On behalf of all of us here at O'Neill & Associates, we hope you and your families are staying safe and healthy. We're proud to continue our work during this time and we'll continue doing everything we can to keep you updated. For daily city, state, and federal updates on the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, please check out our website where updates are posted every morning. OA On Air is produced and edited by Ashley Lockin and Catherine O'Brien. Talk to you next week. As a reminder to our listeners, OA On Air is currently being recorded remotely.